Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. It's the second Sunday of Advent to help prepare our hearts. Today, First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page takes a deep dive into the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We'll learn how great of an example they are to us even today. Aloha, everyone. My name is Steve Page, one of the pastors here on staff at First Pres. It's my honor to share the Word of God with you today. And as we get started, let me ask a question. Have you ever started out a day or an activity, a business meeting or a life with a one plan in mind and then suddenly find yourself involved in something that was a little more daunting than you set out to do? Well, I've had that happen more times than I desired. For example, one of the things I do when I'm writing a sermon like this and my mind gets all jammed up to a point where I can't write anything sensible or coherent is to go jogging. And while I jog, I'm lowering my stress, you know, and I'm praying for God's clarity and wisdom as well as thinking through what is it really I'm trying to say in this message. Well, there was this one time I was jogging just a couple of blocks from my house and I saw at a bus stop a guy, 35-ish, harassing a much older man, probably in his mid-70s, and looking very weary. The older man just kind of sat there, sort of shell-shocked at this younger guy who was obviously really hopped up on drugs, yelling at him and then slapping his head. Well, as I came closer, I yelled out, Hey, yo, what are you doing? Back off! At this, the younger guy starts mouthing off to me, telling me to keep on moving. When I made it clear that I wasn't leaving until he took off, well, he became more threatening and even started to step towards me. And I told him, look, I'm a pastor. I just want you to calm down and move on. Well, after a few more foul words and threats, he realized that I was, I was going to stand my ground and I wasn't going anywhere. And so he finally took off down the street. You know, I stayed with that older gentleman for a while and and, and then I went around the corner to look for a, for a cop that I knew was on duty. Look, the point of telling this story is not to pat myself on the back, you know, for helping this elderly guy, but simply to say this. I thought I was just going for a nice, peaceful, prayer-filled job, just like any other day. But God had other plans. And in the blink of an eye, I took on something more that I never saw coming. And I thought that jog was for me. It was for my needs. But it became apparent in a flash I was jogging for someone beyond me. You see, folks, sometimes we don't realize that as Christians, even in the moments and activities at regular times of our days, we are always a part of something greater for God. Something that is not simply for our lives, but for the lives of others beyond us. In today's Advent story, we see this kind of thing happening in spades. This is our second Sunday of the Advent season, and I want to take a deep dive into an Advent story that is often overlooked. You know, in all the movies or nativity scenes we may see or Christmas cards we may read over these next few weeks, it is very unlikely, and I mean very unlikely, you will ever hear or see the names of these people, much less hear their story told. Now, the names of these often overlooked Advent saints are Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were the parents of John the Baptist and a relative to Jesus Christ himself. And this is their story of how in the blink of an eye, they took on something more for God they never saw coming. Their story begins in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, where it says this, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, 
there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abiah. His, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Now let's stop here for a moment and unpack this a little bit. Luke draws us into the drama by creating a context where the listener of the first century would feel both anger and pity as they heard this. For example, he starts out uh, the story with, in the days of King Herod. Now this is not just a passing incidental reference by Luke, but it is to establish that these were really bad times in the history of Israel. Any first century reader would hear Herod's name and cringe with disgust. See, Herod was a puppet king of Rome who feigned to be remotely Jewish in his faith. On the one hand, he was responsible for rebuilding the great Jerusalem temple. By, by all accounts, was a stupendous wonder. And yet, he was a nasty, conniving, power-hungry, and violent man. So bent on obtaining and keeping power, he committed all kinds of heinous acts. For example, he killed his wife. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. He even killed two of his own sons. And of course, he was the one that killed all those infants in Bethlehem after the wise men visited Jesus there. You know, sometimes what he would also do is pick and choose the chief priests for the temple in order to ensure his own influence over the Jewish religious culture. And I point all this stuff out to say that Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in a culture and time of a vicious and violent king, a corrupt religious and political system while being oppressed by Rome's iron boot. But needless to say, it was neither easy nor a pleasant time to be a committed follower of God. Yet this is exactly how Elizabeth and Zechariah are portrayed in verse 6. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. I wish that could be said about me. In other words, both lived with, with a great deal of spiritual integrity in a time and in a culture where it may have been very difficult to do so. You know, in a time like ours, with all its division and strife and anxiety, and with all the cancel culture and the seeming dearth of godly political dialogue, it is easy to join the contentious chorus of the culture or completely turn our backs to it and lose hope. Lose hope of how we can be used by God to bring about real change. But brothers and sisters, this is exactly the time where we need an army of Elizabeths and Zechariahs to rise up and infuse our cultural landscape. Not just in the church, but in business, in politics, in education, medicine, engineering, you name it. Now, as godly and committed as they were, there was a bit of dissonance between their blamelessness and their blessedness. And this created great pain in their lives. As verse 7 bluntly states it, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Now I want to pause here and say something before we go on with the rest of this story. You know, over the past 36 years of ministry, I've known many couples who have, have experienced the profound heartache of not being able to have children. And my heart goes out to any of you folks who have known the devastating pain of that reality. So please understand, I don't mean to be insensitive or indelicate in any way as I preach on this story today. I simply want to draw out the deep pain and the vulnerability of this godly couple. 
Now, I say vulnerable because we have to understand some cultural issues at play here. For one, you know, to the ancient Jews, infertility was culturally interpreted as something, well, there's something wrong with you and your walk with God. In fact, later in chapter 1 and verse 25, we see how Elizabeth internalized this message by calling her infertility a disgrace. Now, knowing that little cultural detail, now try to imagine what it was like each time Elizabeth was in that social situation where the question inevitably comes up to her, so Elizabeth, do you have any children? I wonder about all the awkward expressions that followed when she answered, no, I don't. The sudden looking away from her face or the abrupt turn of the conversation to something trivial like, well, I hear it's going to rain today. Now, on top of all this social and religious pressure, we, we need to understand that to be childless in the ancient world was economically disastrous. And it was disastrous because it meant that parents had no one to support them in their old age. This was especially dicey for women who had, who had either lost a husband or never had a husband. And this is why you will see so much written in the Bible about helping widows, because there was no social security. There's no safety net for them. And so this is why, for the first century reader, those few verses are such a huge statement, because despite all the religious and economic and social stresses and the potential hardships for their lives, despite their lack of the blessed life from God, Elizabeth and Zechariah keep their spiritual integrity nonetheless. Though these folks are very ordinary, they lived their lives for something more, something that transcended their circumstance, their desires, and even their broken dreams. You know, sometimes I wonder if this dissonance between living blameless but not being blessed is a bit puzzling for our modern American Christian faith. I mean, after all, don't we sometimes feel like, hey, God, you know, we put our faith in you. We sacrifice for you. We serve you. We pray to you. We give to you. And yet, and yet my pain, my hurt and disappointment remain. Now, sometimes when God fails to live up to our little law of reciprocity, our beliefs from Sunday struggle to show up on Monday, if you know what I mean. And so instead of living with spiritual integrity, we live this spiritually divided life. For example, refrain from padding my expense account for my business? What's the sense? Keep myself pure before marriage? What's the sense? Stay committed to accountability or to my small group? What's the sense? Anyone know what I'm talking about? You know, when I really try to get into the life of Elizabeth in a time like hers, in a culture like hers, I, I wonder, I wonder how many times in all her years she looked at all the women who were far less righteous than she, but who got pregnant anyway, and maybe think to herself, where the justice in that? Lord, what about me? I know I did this when my wife had a miscarriage. And I did it many, many years later when my daughter had a miscarriage. I actually would just shout out to God, God, are you kidding me? You know, these are such great women. They're so committed to you. Where is this justice in any of this? Have you guys been there? You know, this whole story causes me to consider this. Are people able to see God in me, see something more in me before they see how God intervenes on my behalf, before he heals me, before he brings me relief or makes my situation better, before he gives me that spouse or that job, that salary, that raise, those kids, that great education? Look, I know these are not easy questions to reflect on. 
but certainly they are worth considering because of at least one issue. The stakes we find ourselves in as Christians are always very, very high. No matter what your status in life, married or single, widowed or divorced, rich or poor, uneducated, educated, employed, unemployed, you are part of God's crucial work to bring about His best in this world. Now, it may be true that your role in that endeavor may not be big or spectacular. However, it is always, and I mean always, significant. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read our story now from starting in verse 8. Now, once Zechariah was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the, off, uh, of the incense offering, the whole assembly of people were praying outside. I want to pause here for a second. See, you've got to understand, this is a very, very significant moment. See, at that time, there were about 20,000 or so priests in all of Israel. Most of them lived in the countryside, just like Zechariah. In other words, there were many more priests than necessary for any given function in the temple. The priests were broken down into 24 divisions or 24 sections. And out of those sections, they took turns serving in the temple, which turned out to be about two weeks every year or one week at a time. Now, during their appointed time of service, they were chosen for specific tasks. This day, Zechariah got to offer the incense in the temple. Now, the altar of incense was in the center of the temple, situated right outside the Holy of Holies, which was the super holy part of the whole temple, in fact, of the whole country. Few Jews ever got this close to such a holy place. So to get the task of offering incense inside the temple is a great privilege, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. So here it is, this simple man from the country, thinking he's hitting the apex of his spiritual service for God and his people, suddenly caught up in something more, something far beyond his wildest imaginations. So let's read on. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink, and even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. But did you notice something interesting about the answer to Zechariah's prayer? Because, you know, remember, Zechariah is well along in years, so this was probably a prayer from a long time ago. My point is, God sure is late to answer this prayer. Look, I point this out because I know we live in a microwave age, but not all prayers are answered in a microwave time. Yes, the New Testament is full of miracles, instant miracles, but it also tells of some slow ones as well. I know we will never fully understand the whole issue of unanswered prayer this side of heaven. But as this story alludes to, sometimes there are greater things at stake than our, our need or desires for which we are praying. 
In other words, your prayers may not be answered, not because you lack faith, but because you are a part of something bigger than your need or desire on which you are so focused. And this is a huge issue to understand for the Christian life. You see, when God acted on behalf of Zechariah and Elizabeth, he was also acting on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. Or to put it another way, they were blessed so that others would be blessed beyond them. As Americans who tend to view life individualistically, we often miss considering the, the greater and broader work of God of which we are always a part. Even now as you sit here, are you able to see in this very moment the significant work of God in which you are involved for those beyond you? Let me put it this way. You know, like Zechariah, we may want to just raise kids, but God may want us to raise prophets for a nation. We may want to simply attend church, but God may want us to disciple one another. We may want to simply get a good education to get a good job, but God may want us to use our education to change the lives of others. We may simply desire to have a good-sized church building and a big enough parking lot to have church services. But God may want us to change the community of Oahu by using our land for greater things beyond church services. Amen? Bottom line, my brothers and sisters, we may want an ordinary life, but as sure as I'm standing here, God has called you to something more. Now, when I say more in American context, I need to make something very, very clear. I'm not necessarily talking about something big or something spectacular, but something significant. Let me explain. Uh, when I ministered in Thailand as a missionary, I knew other missionaries who worked among Muslims in the southern part of that country. Now look, work in the south of Thailand is very dangerous work, and it was slow work. Maybe, maybe they would see 10 people come to Christ in like 10 years. Now, is that big work? No. Is it spectacular work? No. But is it significant work? Absolutely. And it's significant because it requires such great faith and self-sacrifice and courage and love. How might life change for us, be it our prayer life, our parenting, our work life, our educational life, or whatever, if we really grasped and walked in life as if we are always a part of something more, as part of God's greater work of transforming the world he loves. Look, I know this sounds a bit grandiose, but I don't think the Bible offers any other journey for the Christian. I mean, think about it. I have never read in all my years as a Christian that somewhere in the Bible it says, you know, you weren't really made for much. In fact, you're made to simply just hang in there, attend church as often as you can, and try not to sin too much before you die. That's about it. Now, if that's what your Bible says to you, you need to get another Bible, okay? But kidding aside, as Christians, whatever stage or lot in life we find ourselves, we are always a part of something more. There's not a minute you walk on this planet where you are not a part of the greater plan of God for those beyond you, even when you think you're just out for a nice jog. You know, if you still doubt all of what I said, well, you're not alone. You see, when Zechariah gets filled in by the angel about all the you know, special call on his, on his child, surprisingly, Zechariah doubts the whole thing. So God does something to help Zechariah's doubt and find more faith. In verse 20, it says this, But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, 
you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Let me just say one thing about this. Yes, God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in unfailing love towards us. But Zechariah had to realize that he was part of something that was no casual thing. Zechariah wasn't being recruited simply to play in a softball league for seniors. This is serious stuff. And so too is our place in God's work in this world. Even if we never run a huge ministry, it doesn't mean that the stakes are not high for the kind of life we are all called to live. Now, I also want you to be clear of this. As harsh as this may seem to our modern sensibilities, his loss of speech did not mean his loss of ministry. It meant sharpening it. It meant adding more depth to his ministry than he had ever known before. Let me show you what I mean. So finally now John is born. Zechariah gets his voice back. And as his newfound words reveal, he now understands on a whole deeper level what God is up to in the world through he and his wife and how his son has a pivotal role in all of it. Zechariah says this just a few days after Elizabeth gives birth. Then John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that, he would be, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now notice a couple of things. Notice how despite his hopeless present situations politically, socially, economically, whatever, now his words speak of a future filled with hope. And notice also that his first words are not about his son, but of what God is going to do in the world beyond the fact that God was giving him a son. And he goes from a man desiring just a single child to a man who can see a future for his whole people. Before he couldn't believe the angel that was right in front of him. Now he can believe God for things he will never see in his lifetime. Bottom line, Zechariah experienced some serious transformation in the days of his silence. Now, after he says all those great things about what God would do through the Savior that would now come, I then picture Zechariah kind of looking right down into the face of his newborn son with the biggest smile that he's ever had in his face and with a joy-filled and very sober voice says these words, And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. You know, for all you parents out there, or even for your grandparents, aunties, uncles for that matter, can I pass on a challenge your way? What would happen if we took on this mentality 
a mentality that understood, I'm not just raising my kids for our family's sake or even for their own sake. I'm raising my kids for the greater kingdom work on our island or in our country or maybe in our world. Now look, I'm not saying you've got to go out and sign up your kids to be missionaries to Uzbekistan or something like that. But I'm saying in your whispers at night as you tuck them in, or in the stories you read them, or in those moments where you're helping them with their homework or their sports or ballet lessons or violin lessons or whatever, do you communicate a Zechariah-type message over them or to them? Something like, my dear son, my dear daughter, study and learn what you can, not simply so you can get into a great school, but so that you can join God in transforming the world he loves. Join God in making disciples of Jesus wherever you go, whatever career you might have. To join God in establishing his peace on earth. Join God in bringing light where there has been darkness, hope where there has been despair, freedom where there has been oppression, and life where there has been death. In other words, my child, never ever forget that your life is always a part of something more for God. You know, every time I read this story, I speculate and I wonder, how did they, how did Elizabeth and Zechariah raise John after this, you know? I mean, how did they tell him this story? How often did they remind him of his call and intentionally train him for that outcome? Is it possible that John's message as a prophet isn't part a reflection of Zechariah and Elizabeth's teaching and influence? a reflection of their sense of justice or their sense of hope for God's salvation. Was not his zeal as a prophet slowly forged over time by this elderly couple? Bottom line, I believe John the Baptist did not simply become the greatest prophet of all time despite Elizabeth and Zechariah, but because of them. Now one last thing before we close. As chapter 1 finishes, we never see or hear from this couple again. The work of Zechariah and Elizabeth is now a work in obscurity. From here on out, it's a long, hard work of raising a prophet behind the scenes. And I point that out because I think most of us can relate to that kind of hidden service for God's purposes. Services, you know, kind of away from the center of attention or away from being noticed, away from being, even being mentioned. You know, at First Pres, I think we have a great core of hidden servants. Like those folks who make crafts and jams and jellies to set at our, sell at our annual church bazaar so that a large amount of money goes to help the poor, the marginal, the lost, and the hurting of our society. That kind of hidden service matters a great deal to God. Or when you privately contribute even a small amount to the food pantry or the food bank. Or recently when you served meals and handed out food and greeted people. It matters a great deal to God. And when you pray and give encouragement in your small group, it matters. Or when you spend an extra effort to invest in your marriage, it matters. Or when you stop and take time to pray for a coworker going through a tough time, it matters a great deal to God. My point is, there's no such thing as insignificant service in the kingdom of God. Even if that service seems obscure or small in scale or never gets noticed or the attention it deserves. You can be sure that noticeability is not necessarily a sign of how significant your service is to the heart of God. It's your faithfulness to live into what, has, what he's given you to do. That's the thing that matters. And this is why I love this quote by a bishop of England. Even a small difference is a real difference. 
You see, folks, we don't have to make big differences. We just need to make real differences to heal and change our world for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. And may I say that this Christmas, look for the opportunity from God for the more as you go about your day to live beyond what you had in mind for that day or for that hour or even for that little jog in your neighborhood. Watch how as you avail yourself, uh, you avail your time, your talent, your treasure, even your struggles and pain for the sake of others. God will turn it into something more for his kingdom. In fact, you can even pray each morning, God, give me the eyes to see when you're calling me into something more during my day. And then, Lord, give me the courage to carry it out. Okay, so what's God saying to you right here, right now? How is he stretching your soul in this moment? Do you struggle to look beyond your own busyness and boredom in life to see the something more that God is inviting you into? Maybe you see it, but you need a little more courage to live into it. Or maybe you're the one who actually needs the something more, who needs God's blessing today. Maybe you're feeling the sting of loneliness or loss or limitations during this season of your life. Well, I want to pray for you excuse me, today. And for those of you who, who need more of God, you want a fresh start with God, I want to invite you to commit your life to Him in a very few minutes. I'm going to pray a simple prayer that you can repeat along with me. And you know, I did the very same thing 39 years ago this week, and that experience radically changed my life. For now, let's all just close our eyes and settle our hearts and take a deep breath. Lord, we sit here amazed at how you intentionally use the most ordinary of folks to do your amazing work in our world. Thank you for the honor of joining you in your mission to heal and change this world. Lord, for those of us who struggle to see the something more that you call us into, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Open the eyes of the heart and show them the world of opportunity that is before them in every hour of their day. And Lord, also then give us courage. Give us courage to take that next small step into that something more. And for those of us who are hurting this Advent season, I pray, Lord, that you would provide a blessing upon their lives. May they experience more of your love, more of your comfort, of your strength, and of your healing, more of your peace in their souls. And now for those of you who want to give your life fully to Jesus today, just follow me in this very simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess the hopelessness of my life without you. Forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. And as best as I know how, I commit my life to you. Come and fill me with your spirit today. In your gracious and loving name, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Now, for those of you who prayed for the first time to give your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to hit that commit button in the chat area. See, when you click on that, a prayer team member or maybe a pastoral staff can get connected with you right away in a private chat 
window. Look, we want to celebrate with you and also pray with you to affirm this very, very important decision for your life. We also have more information that we'd like to provide for you, which will help you in your new walk with Jesus Christ. So just hit that button. Now, before I give the blessing today, let me just say thanks again to all of you for joining us. We're so glad that you worship with us today. And again, if you've given your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to hit the commit button on your screen. And if any of you still want prayer before you leave our service, just hit that prayer button. We'd love to serve you. And remember, right after I finish, we're going to be having communion together via Zoom. So just hit the connect group button in the chat area and you'll be taken right into the forum for communion. Now, if you want to extend the discussion about what we have sung about and prayed about and learned about today, then I invite you to stay after communion to join a connect group. If you're new to the community, this is a great way to get to know new people. I hope to see you there. So now receive this blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all his joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may God give you his eyes to see and the courage to act upon all the opportunities that arise, even the most ordinary moments of your days, to express the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Aloha. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we become a part of God's plan. And that plan gives us something more, much more than we could ever imagine. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Prez website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Normally, we meet Sundays at our Ko'olau campus or at The Vine in Kaka'ako, but during this COVID season, you can find the entire church service streamed online on the church's websites, fpchawaii.org or thevinehawaii.org. For our virtual church service, click the online church box at our regular church service times. Sunday morning at 8, 9.30, and 11.11 for First Prez, and Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. for The Vine. Be sure to check your email for links to sermons, church news and updates, and daily devotionals. If you have any questions or needs, you can always reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, Merry Christmas, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2020 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.